Okay, today, John chapter 2. It's, uh, we're going to talk about cleansing the temple and when it's okay to be angry and when it's not okay to be angry. Because I think some of us have different beliefs on that one, and so we're going to try to get to the bottom of that. So let's pray, and we'll jump in. Dear Heavenly Father, thanks again for this day. Thank you for this time that we have, that we can open up your word together with all the chaos that's going on around us, um, especially in the next couple weeks. I feel the tension's going to rise if we watch too much cable news. And so I pray, Lord, that you'll help us to see um, the beauty of the simplicity of removing barriers to you, Lord, that that's the main focus that we should all have, and that the stuff that swirls around us should be very secondary, if not completely tertiary to our thoughts, that our main focus should be, how do we help people to know you more? Help us to do that, Lord. We love you. Amen. I'm going to read all of John 2, 13 to 22, and then we'll start to break it down. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has been 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So, lots going on here. Um, Much of the Gospel of John revolves around the Passover meal. We see it show up every year in the three years of his ministry. So Passover is very important in the telling through John's, the lens of his life and his time with Jesus. Passover was a big deal. Passover is the remembrance of when God passed over the people of God, when they were uh, about to be um, freed from Egypt, when the firstborn in Egypt died, but if they had put some blood on the doorpost, then that that spirit of of death or the Holy Spirit bringing death would pass over those families. So they remembered every year as a time to celebrate God's protection and provision over all of them. And for Jesus and his disciples, when you were about 18 years of age and older as a young man, it was your job to go to the temple and it was your job to take the family sacrifice as part of the ritual of sacrifice of of atoning for the sins of the family. Most young men would make that trip to Jerusalem. I don't know if it looked like a a raucous young men's road trip like I would imagine. Um, But they would show up at the temple and they would bring the sacrifice with them or, we'll see in a minute, they would purchase the sacrifice when they got there and they would be the representatives of their family and they would carry that into the temple to bring the sacrifice um, to for the remission of sins of their family. So that's what's going on. So when it says that Jesus went uh, up to Jerusalem, it's a a topographical reference. It is not a map reference that most of us... If you've grown up in a family that didn't use the compass, and they would say things like, well, let's go down there. Let's go down to Fort Collins. And technically, I know, living in here in Laramie, it is down because it's topographically lower than us, but growing up in southern Indiana, um, I used to drive my dad nuts when people would say, let's go down to Evansville. He's like, you're going to take a shovel? I was like, no, dad, south. We're going south to Evansville. 
will go south. It drove him batty. But when you see this, that says Jesus went up to Jerusalem, he's, it's literal that Jerusalem is at a higher elevation than Capernaum. That in his travels to, from Capernaum far, far up in the north, the north part of the Sea of Galilee, you can kind of see as the topography on this attempted relief, um, as you go all that way, you travel to, from Capernaum, and you travel the road to Jerusalem. And it's literally a city on a hill. And when you drive in, you can see where the temple would have been. You can see um, parts of it. And we know that it was, it was adorned in white marble all around. And so when the sun would reflect off Jerusalem, there's parts all around Israel that um, Amber and I got to see a couple years ago that when you're coming into the area, you see the city of Jerusalem from far away. Um, you can see it from Jordan. When we were in the parts of Jordan last year, or I was in parts of Jordan last year, you could see the city lights of Jerusalem. You could see that. So that temple adorned in white would have been seen for 40, a minimum of 40 miles away from the city. So everyone around would have seen this, this glowing white city, this temple on the city on the hill. Everyone's going there. So for Jesus to say that they went up to Jerusalem, he's being quite literal, that they had to go up the mountain to it. Uh, so, <clears throat> that's their traveling route. They're going there to this temple. Now, what the temple looks like, and don't get caught up in everything around here, I really want you to kind of look down here at the bottom where it says the Gentiles' courtyard. So, you have this temple. You've got the Holy of Holies all the way where, like, number one and number two are. Uh, the priest's room, the Holy of Holies is two. The veil that's torn, that's the holy place. So, the court side, the courtyard out here, you'd have all these different gates there were all different kind of gates layered in. You'd have the leper's chamber where people want to come and worship the Lord, want to come bring their sacrifice, but they have to be quarantined from everyone else. So maybe we should have like the COVID corner here in the church. We'll set that room up in there maybe is that. But anyway, so you have all of this stuff happening here and where the slaughter yard is and the slaughter tables, where the altars are, where things are burned. You have all, it's very laid out in, in detail. But on the outside is the Gentiles court. This is where non-believers, non-Jews, would come to the temple and they would hang out in the Gentiles' court. This is where they would be. They're not allowed in the temple because they're not, they're not Jewish. They're not believers in God. They haven't converted to Judaism. And so they would be out in the courtyard trying to be around to learn about God, curious about God. That's where the Gentiles would hang out. So that's kind of the picture that we have going. Um, let's go back a little bit. What we see happening here. So Jesus shows up in this place. He's going for the Passover. He's with the disciples. He would have made this trip multiple times over years. He would have seen these things. But now the time has come for his ministry to begin. All those other times he would have seen these things. What he's about to get really angry about. I'm not saying he did nothing about it, but he didn't do this. We have no record of him cleansing the temple or clearing it out. We do know, uh, it depends upon who you read, John mentions this at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. The other three synoptic gospels mention it towards the end. Some people try to theorize this as John taking a story from later in Jesus' life and putting it at the beginning to try to set some kind of tone in his writing. Um, I, don't, I don't think so. I think he did it twice. I think Jesus cleansed the temple at the beginning of his ministry, and in over three years of preaching on the countryside and talking, in three years, nothing changed in the temple. 
In three years, people continued doing what he had tried to correct in this moment we're about to see. And so at the end of his ministry, he does it again. That's what I think. Um, and I'm pretty much always right. So <laughs> that's what we're going to go for. That he's cleansing this temple. So he shows up. It's Passover, bringing the sacrifice. And what he sees are people selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there in the Gentile court. Now, it's... It's not the practice of selling sacrificial animals isn't the issue. That had existed forever. If you're traveling from all over the countryside of Israel and you have to show up, it's kind of hard to travel light when you're dragging an oxen behind you. It's not real practical. And so they, but this usually happened at the Mount of Olives. Across the valley is where this happened. This is where, when, when you're there today, you can still see the olives there. You go to the Mount of Olives, and that's where people would graze their animals. It's all, you would go to the Mount of Olives, get your sacrifice, and you would walk it a couple miles through the valley. It's, it's not a hard walk, but it's up and down. And you would walk the valley, and then you would show up at the temple, and you would sacrifice your animal. It made sense. I'm traveling this far. I'm trying to travel light. I have, I'm already planning on the sacrifice. Whether you sacrifice an animal from home, that's a financial burden, or you bring money to buy one, it's still a financial burden. It's a wash. It's not the selling of the sacrifice. It's the location of where it was being sold. And so you're, you're seeing, he walks to the temple. Here's this place, the Gentile court. and People are selling animals there. And there are money changers there. The, the temple wouldn't allow certain money. So they would, wouldn't allow the, the drachma, and they wouldn't allow the Roman denarii or denarius. They wouldn't allow it because it had graven in, images on it. So you had to have someone, you had to do a money exchange to get the good money, even though when you look historically, it was a, I have to look at my notes, a Tychian, is that what it's called? No, Tyrian coin. It had images on it too. What we really think is that they're afraid of the denarius from out in the hinterland showing up and not being as pure a quality of metal as what is in the Tyrian coin, so they, they didn't want to get cheated. Well, his denarius has this much gold in it, and this one's this small, and oh, we can't just got a stamp on it. They're, they're worried about money. They don't want to get cheated out of their sacrificial money being used to purchase animals. So everything about this infuriates Jesus. This Gentile court is supposed to be a place where people curious about God show up. They see the temple from 30 miles away. What is that? Well, that's where the Holy of Holies exists, of the one true God. So they're supposed to show up at the temple. What are all these people doing? Well, they're coming to worship the one and only God. Well, why are they bringing animals? Well, our sin is a horrible offense to the Father. And the only way to be cleansed of the sin is for their sacrifice to be made. So all, this whole system is set up to be an open door, an evangelistic tool, a way of welcoming people far from God into this relationship with God. Now at this point, they have to convert to Judaism, but it's supposed to be a place where people are in awe of the Father and the worship of our God. And instead, they have a feedlot. Instead of the aroma of the incense being burned, the aroma of the sacrifice being burned, they get manure. You get people, you ever been to a, you ever been to a city in Mexico or someplace out of here where you're haggling for things? 
So I'm coming with my sacrifice. I'm coming to, or coming to purchase my sacrifice. I did my money exchange. I'm arguing with the money changer. What's the exchange rate today? And I, oh, you're ripping me off. And, you're, and so you get your money and you go to buy your oxen. Well, this oxen's going to be, I don't know, 40 coins. I don't know if that's accurate or not. 40 coins. Well, well I can get one for 35 over there. So well, but mine's the best ox here. And it's going to really take away your sin. And they've missed the whole point. And they've put it on display at the temple steps. So as you're supposed to be in this holy place, walking up to it, a place of reverence, a place of sacrifice, you hear the haggling of the marketplace everywhere. And it infuriates Jesus. Number one, they've cheapened the glory of God. They've cheapened the holy place. But Jesus knows what's coming. He's going to destroy the temple. He, the curtain's going to be torn. He knows all those things. But it, he's, the cheapness of their faith, the cheapness of how they're worshiping, they're not even trying, and it infuriates him. But he also is angry at the barrier. Here's all these people that are ready with questions before the Lord, and they're totally distracted by what's happening in the Gentile court. That not only have you cheapened the faith enough to where you're not really, you're just going through the motions, but you've also created a barrier where no one else is going to come to God because you've made it so cheap. What's the point? So in his anger... He crafts a whip. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple. Now, let's, we need to break this down. How many people have ever braided a whip? I figured Murray had. I know he works with leather. How long would it take you to braid a whip? A while. This isn't Jesus. I think we have this picture of Jesus because what we've done is we've tried to I don't know what we would call I don't. We've tried to make Jesus so humble that he would never get angry about anything. He's just so passive. He's so humble. He's such a great, peaceful, loving guy. He would never get angry of anything. So Jesus shows up in his anger. He sits down, gets some cords, and braids a whip. A lot of times we'll say it like this. There are things that are righteous anger and things that are unrighteous anger. And what is righteous anger? Well, it's the things that are affront to God, and there's things to be angry about, and our anger is justified. And I think what we usually do is we pick things that are, we get angry about, and we make them righteous anger, so we justify our anger. But here is Jesus sitting down and taking the time to make a whip. This isn't Jesus walks in, and he just kind of walks up, he's hanging with the disciples. Hey, you know, God's great. Yeah. Then, oh my. Oh me. Look at what's happening. And he grabs a whip, and he just starts driving everyone out. No, he, he's stewing. He's fuming. He sits down. He braids a whip. I don't know how long this would take. I mean, he, was, he, was a, uh, he worked with his hands. He was a stonemason slash carpenter. They're kind of interchangeable in the Middle East. So this, this is a man that would have had calloused hands, rough, strong. He, and he, he walks into this place with his, his posse of commercial fishermen, like, these aren't nothing against, you know, Birkenstocks and socks and all those. Like, these aren't, these aren't dainty guys that are walking in looking for a soy latte and then all of a sudden just get a little upset and like, well, what is happening? We need to do something about this. Let's, let's sit around and contemplate it. Let's have a speech. Let's talk. Maybe we can write a complaint letter. Let's talk to the manager. Maybe he sits down and braids a whip. This is ending today. He fashions this whip. He's got his crew. You know they're asking, Jesus, what are you doing? 
just wait. We got to take care of this. What are you saying? What are you doing? And then in a moment of holy anger, he drives out the cattle and he drives out the people. He doesn't just turn the tables over. He walks up to the money lenders and grabs their, the coin purses and he pours them out. Like, do you know how, how terrifying his eyes must have been? That he walked up to a table, a guy's got his jars of coins, he's exchanging them, he looks him right in the eye and picks it up and pours it out. Like, what are you going to do? Try it. Have you ever been around someone that's that fearless and has a presence that, why did no one tackle him? Why did no one try to beat him to an inch of his life? Nothing. There was a moment of the Spirit overwhelming this place, and no one even tried. Have you ever used a bullwhip? I put a mark on the side of my face with a bullwhip once. There was a guy who was, had just trained to be a farrier in West Virginia, and he shows up, and he's got his bullwhip, and he's cracking Oh, I can do that. I watched Indiana Jones, and I did it completely wrong. And I put a line across my face that was there for like a week. I'm lucky I didn't break the skin. So not only does he braid the whip, he knows how to use it. If you don't know how to use it, it's just like throwing leather around in a circle. It does nothing. No oxen is going to go, oh, the leather touched me. you got to be able to crack that whip. He causes a stampede around the Gentile court, turns over the money tables, and just try me. Just try me. Now, why is he so angry? I think we get a hint in the next line. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples remembered it was written out of, I believe it's Psalm 96, maybe 94. I have to look at my notes. Zeal for your house will consume me. He didn't turn over the pigeon cages. The sacrificial pigeon was the sacrifice that was affordable to the poor. So what leads me to believe this has nothing to do with the animals being used for sacrifice. It has nothing to do with even necessarily the exchange of money. It's all about they've turned the house of God into a place of commerce. And his anger rises that they've created these barriers for people to be near to God. They've cheapened the glory of God. But even in his compassion, in that moment, he doesn't want to hinder the poorest of the poor. Because if he turned over the pigeon cages and they all escaped, it's not like he can just go catch some pigeons super easy. That was a process. The oxen, the sheep would probably be gathered back. They'd probably be able to get them but the pigeons are just gone. He doesn't want to cause undue stress and strain upon the poorest of the poor. His righteous anger rises out of the cheapening of the worship of God and out of the barriers that are put between him and the people who had... The temple and his father and him puts barriers between people knowing God. There are a few things that I get pretty angry about. Um, I'm usually pretty... I'm pretty even-keeled most of the time. Um, there are some things that I get really angry about. Um, one is people that don't know how to drive. I just, it infuriates me when people don't follow the rules of the road or they, they're driving too slow when the speed limit's 30, go 30. Why are you going 20? This, isn't, this is Laramie. It's not a Sunday drive. It's not, what are you doing? Um, I also don't like it when people ride me, uh, ride my rear of my vehicle when I'm trying to drive down the road and I'm, I'm already in the left lane going down to Denver. I said down, see? 
going down to Denver, and they're riding me, and they're trying to, like, I, so I, the brake check is a great way to get people off your back. Not with your children and family in the car when you're by yourself. <laughs> when I lived in Indianapolis, I grew up in a small town in Vincennes, Indiana, um, similar to the size of Laramie, and went to school in Indianapolis. I had a very, I paid $300 for a car and put about $500 in. It was a giant boat of a car, 1984 Olds Delta 88 Royale, two-door boat, a giant, massive vehicle. So when people wouldn't let me merge or thought that they were in their little plastic vehicles going down the road, I would just turn the signal on. You're not letting me over? Okay, well, I'm merging. It's on you. If this hits your car, you're in trouble. It's going to scratch mine, and I'm just going to put white out on the scratches. I don't really care. <laughs> so I have a... I, it's, it's, I, it's not the level of road rage. I'm not brandishing any firearms at people on the car, but it can get close sometimes. It's, I'm not proud of it. It's the truth. It is childish, it is not warranted, it is silly, it is selfish, it is not acceptable. That kind of anger is not okay with the Lord. Not okay at all. But what about the suffering in the world? I have a... I will go dark real fast when women and children are marginalized, they are abused... Um, they're used as property or passed as some kind of commodity. Um, I have, there's a, I, I go dark fast. I want to end people. I want to take care of the problem. I want to cause suffering and pain on those who would subject women and children to those kinds of things. I can try to justify it and say that um, we're told in, in Timothy and Titus, take care of orphans and widows, and I'm just trying to do the Lord's work, but... I don't think I should go out and just do that myself. But there's a, there's a, I believe that's a righteous anger. The difference between a righteous anger we see the Lord exhibiting here is it's to help the marginalized. It's to go after it, and it puts us to action. Us ranting about what's on TV, well, you know, the election and you know, this and that, and that, and we're just sitting around ranting about it, getting mad over things, and well, my party did this, and your party did that, and we did this thing, and I can't believe that person's running, I can't believe they're... That's, in the grand scheme of, of life, whatever happens in a couple weeks, it's probably not going to change most of our lives a whole lot. Could it potentially? Maybe, but like, what? That's not the level of righteous anger. People being abused, people being terrorized. That kind of righteous anger is the kind of anger that you're going to see bubble out of Jesus and what should bubble out of us. But it should move us to action. If all you do is complain and doesn't move you to action, that's a good indicator this isn't the kind of anger that's going to rise to the level of being okay with the Lord. That's why my driving stuff is stupid. My children learned the word moron because that's what I would call people while driving. And then my bride would say, really? You're teaching your children that? I know, I'm a jerk, I need to stop. Jesus is furious. But he's not furious at the people seeking the sacrificial animals. He's furious at the people that would cause this to be a barrier between God and people searching him. And he shows his disciples, this is how we're going to do things. Okay, move on. Verse 18. 
So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? Um, they don't get the point. Jesus isn't, I, I don't believe Jesus is even speaking to these to the Jewish people questioning him. But this is typical, isn't it? Oh, you came in and you're correcting something that's bad. Um, When did God put you in charge of this? You ever said that to someone or have it said to you? So instead of of doing the internal processing of, we really have kind of defiled the temple of God. We really have kind of, This isn't really okay. Instead of saying, instead of being able to process and internalize and reflect, and when you're corrected and someone points out the flaws or points out something you've wronged, instead of owning it and going, you deflect it. Who made you boss of the world? Who put you in charge? I'm showing you something that's pretty glaringly obvious. This isn't okay. You should probably just accept it and go, we, we got this wrong. Repent, apologize, move on. Instead, they say, what sign do you show us? What sign do you show us for doing these things? Prove this is from God. Prove this is okay. I don't have to prove anything to you. It's clearly apparent. You should know this. So Jesus doesn't really address them. Destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it up. Now, this is John and the disciples getting a glimpse of what's about to happen. Jesus says this, but I don't think he's talking to the Jews. I think he's talking to the disciples. And he's telling them, he's giving them some foreshadowing. He's giving them some hints. That this isn't how it's always going to be. We know that because John tells us. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Why would John say that? When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So as John is inspired by the Holy Spirit, he's writing this down. He's writing down what what the words of Christ were. He then puts in kind of the end note. We remembered what he said. This is, this is John giving you a picture into, he told us all kinds of stuff. We didn't listen very well, but when we saw it happen, man, it all made sense. Like, think about the, the conversation the disciples had. Jesus is dead. He's buried. Those three days. How could he, why he said this, he did this, how could it? And that's why they were overwhelmed when he's risen from the dead. He's back from the dead. And then for 40 days, Jesus is with them. He's not with them. He's in the countryside. He's back and forth. Can you picture, just just put yourself in the shoes of the disciples. Man, he said this, and now he's here. So because he said that, that means this is true too. Then this is consistent, consistent, consistent. I'm going to send a helper. There's a helper coming. Even after Jesus ascends to heaven and you have the day of Pentecost, weeks later, he promised this. So they're in the upper room. The Holy Spirit descends upon them. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. What happens next? Peter throws out a sermon and thousands are converted. Can you imagine? This is it. Everything. I now have the power of God, the power of the Spirit. I'm indwelt. He goes out, boom, preaches with an authority that thousands come to faith in one sermon. This is John giving us a glimpse of how all of those conversations would be like. Remember this? You remember this? You remember this? Remember that? Oh, yeah, they said that. I feel that way about the conversation I've had with my father over the last you know, 43 years I can remember conversations with him. 
got to fix something, got to do something. If I'm going to wire something in the house, do something else, what, like he's a, oh, the car's doing this. It sounds like this. The constant talking, the constant conversation, the constant teaching and training that he did as my dad, that I just was just in the car listening. And I found out in the last few weeks of driving with Eli, as he's got his permit, terrifying, I know, he's actually doing a great job. That I would say like, hey, watch this, watch this. And there's been a couple times he's like, dad, I've been listening to you for the last two years. You've told me this already. Oh, I guess the whole time we're driving around, I'm trying to show and to teach. And, and so I expect when he's out on his own, that there'll be moments where he's going to go, oh yeah, I remember that. Dad said that that one time. Oh yeah, I remember that. That's what Jesus is doing to the disciples. In the midst of this moment, he's also thinking of them. Several weeks ago when Raina um, spoke outside and um, she preached that day, that there was a, we tried to give you a mental image uh, of that most everything that we do or everything we see in the scriptures, especially in John, are going to either be directed upwards towards God and worship, they're going to be directed internally in our personal growth, or they're going to be directed outwardly into the community. I feel like this passage that we've just kind of spoken through for the last couple minutes hits all three. Like his, his anger, Christ's anger in this moment is the robbing of the glory of God because there's a barrier for people to come to know God. So that's the upward, like there's no worship going to flow to the Father because there's a barrier there. There's also a, a, a massive barrier to the internal change that happens because people don't have access to God because of this barrier of cattle and animals and the commerce of things instead of seeing the pureness and the holy of God. There's also this internal growth in the disciples where he's dropping these hints of what's to come and the promises of God that when he does die, they're going to swell in confidence and trust. Because everything he said is coming true. Everything he said is coming to fruition. And then you have this push for the outward. A push for people to come to know God. So I got to thinking about the barriers that exist for people to come to church or come to a relationship with God. And I've heard all of them in 15 years of ministry. Family hurts. Bad church experiences. Um... People saying things that are just so far from the truth of God that it pushes people away. Anti-intellectualism in the church pushes people, especially in a college town. Um, people unwilling to even open up to different ideas or they don't want to think through things. They just assume things about people over and over and over again. Barriers. I remember when I first came to faith as a 17-year-old, um, there's, the, there's the barriers that no one actually says and the barriers that you perceive. The perceived barriers and then the actual spoken barriers. I was working at Tractor Supply Company and then a sporting goods store when I came to faith. Started going to church and I didn't own a pair of khakis. And all around me were all these people wearing a certain wardrobe, the church clothes wardrobe. Well, I need to go out and buy new clothes. So I did. And then I went to another church after being at that church for a while and there wasn't as strict a dress code, but there was still like a code. No one said that. No one looked at me and said, Mike, if you don't have a button-up shirt tucked in, the Lord won't see you. No one said that to me. But there was kind of like the, I got to dress up, I got to do these things, I got to... And that was kind of a, a weird... That was on me. That was my issue. That I looked out and I thought, well, gosh, I don't fit in here. Maybe I should do something different. And eventually I got to where I just didn't care. 
I just don't care. But then you have the external pressures that people actually say to people. And they become very strong barriers for people to come to faith. There's a former skateboard park designer that was part of our church in West Virginia. He had lived in Las Vegas um, a lot of his life. He had gotten clean from drinking and drugs, and he moved all the way to the East Coast to try to get away from that environment. Um, and then he starts coming to our church. He designed a skate ramp for the youth group, and we had one that was around for a while. It was only there for a slight It was there before we got there, and then he did some stuff in town and developed a relationship with some of the pastors, and so he was coming to church. And then all of a sudden, he wasn't around anymore. And so I bumped into him with a couple other guys from the staff at Applebee's, the great melting pot of America. So we go to Applebee's, and he's there, and I just say, you know, hey, where you been? Well, you know, I've just been really busy and really... And you could just tell there was something going on. Like, you can discern that with people. Like, it's not just, man, I've been working hard. It's like, well, you know, I've just been... Like, the body language, it reeked of something happened. So we kept talking, kept talking, and then um, we finally got him to open up. You going to come to church? I don't know. I don't know. I don't, I don't think I'm welcome there. And all of us, like, ears perked. What? What do you mean you're not welcome there? Well, you know, a month ago I was at church, and he's covered in tattoos. You know, the neck one's all the way down. He's covered in them. And he's like, ah, oh, this lady came up to me and, and said that I needed, a, needed to wear a long sleeve shirt to cover those up if I was going to come to church. That wasn't appropriate to show off my tattoos at church. And thankfully, all the people I was on staff with, we rose to the level of righteous anger. We started braiding whips. We went and found that lady. and we, No, we didn't. <laughs> I had you for a second, though. Um, we told him that that lady was an idiot, that maybe she doesn't know the gospel, and we apologized. Please come back to church. And then that next week, I think I was up to preach. I, 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 I always preached the evening service, but sometimes I did the morning service, and I think it was, I made it my job to make sure that never happened again. And I just said, if any of you ever do that to a person in this church, um, we will put you under church discipline, and we may remove you from the church. You're not going to be a barrier to people entering our building to come to see Christ. And so that was well-received by most, I think there's a few emails saying I spoke too strongly, but I was right, so I didn't care. We talked through it. I'm not, being, I'm not that harsh. We talked through it. We understood. But that's not, like, we can't be barriers to people coming to faith. People should feel that no matter where they're at or what they're struggling with or the things they deal with, that this place is open to them. And the people of this church will welcome them with open arms. And if there are issues of sin that need to be dealt with, that happens after we know that they know the gospel. You can't preach to people about sin in their lives if they don't know Jesus. You're just being judgmental and legalistic. They have to have a relationship with Christ before they ever see the beauty of following Him and all that He has for us in His Word. So I'm always running that gauge in my head when I'm encountering new people or they're having questions. They come to me and ask questions about faith, about God. I'm like, well, how do they? I, I, I find ways. They have a relationship with God. Okay, then I can press into this issue. They don't really know the Lord. It doesn't matter that this is bad or sinful or whatever. We need to know Jesus because the Spirit is the one that's going to give people the power to deal with all their other stuff. We can't have barriers into this building. 
We can't have barriers into our lives. Are you willing to sit in the midst of all of the stuff of people's lives and provide constant avenues of grace? Or do you block people off because they don't measure up or you don't think they're... That's not okay. It's not okay. What I'm thankful in this church is that I've never really experienced that here. I've never, I've never experienced someone being a barrier to someone coming to faith or coming to the church. I've, never, I've just never seen it. Maybe it's existed, but I've never seen it. But if we have some things that are missing, if you, as part of this church, whether you're a member, you've been attending for a while, and if you see barriers that we are putting up as a faith community for people to come into this place, then it's your obligation to let us know as leaders that that's happening. If it's something we're doing, now if it's like preference stuff, Mike, if we had a fog machine, a laser light show, that would bring in all the people from the bars. and uh, Like, just stop. That's not what I'm talking about. But if we are putting up barriers, then those need to be removed. We cannot allow them to exist. We're supposed to be this open place that lets people come in in the midst of whatever they're dealing with. They feel the love of Christ, and then we love them enough not to leave them in the sin that they walked in here with, and we walk them towards the throne, the throne of grace in everything that's going on. That's why Jesus was so mad. He's furious because of the barriers that existed and the worship that was being robbed from his Father in heaven. So we need to live life with some fierce intention, I believe. An unwavering intentionality to what we do. That we see every opportunity that's out there for us to share the love of Christ. If you would sit down and look at your last week and look at where you spent your time, work, play, family, friends, if you just look at the last week where you spent your life, what you spend your life on, or where you, the time and the talent and the treasure that you put into your life, do you see all of the opportunities for Christ to be known in every one of those times in your day? the hobbies that you enjoy, the TV shows you like to watch, the things you like to do, the play with the family, the things you experience, the vacations you go on, the dinner you go out to or order in, or the people you work with. Do you see all of the people in your life as people that either need to know Jesus for the first time or people that can grow in their faith with Jesus and you get to play a part of that? Yes, there's times to be alone. There's times to rejuvenate. There's times to refresh. But that should energize you to then step back into the fray. Do you live with that kind of intentionality? I think Jesus is giving us that example there. He showed up to celebrate Passover with the disciples, and he saw immediately there was a problem, and he jumped into that problem. And even though it's very clear that problem wasn't solved, because three years later he's doing the same thing, he was continually teaching his disciples in the midst of all of it. That there's something more important than just the Passover meal, just the road trip. There's something important in bringing people to the Father in everyday life. So for the next week, I think it'd be pretty great if you'd spend some time reflecting on that. Where are some parts of your life that you seem to keep compartmentalized away from faith, that you need to open the doors to let faith in? Is it work? 
Is it home? Is it school? Is it the hobbies you enjoy? Invite some people along with opportunities to help them see Jesus in the midst of all you're doing. All right, let's pray. Dearly Father, thank you for um, the power of your word. And thank you for the reminder that when we come to this place to worship, it's not acceptable for there to be barriers in the way. And if there's any barriers that we put down um, that cause people not to want to, to engage with the church body, then I pray you'll help us to see those exposed. And in our own lives, Lord, not just in the building, it's not just about people coming to this place, it's about people coming to know you. So if we have barriers in our own hearts and our own lives that are stop points for us being able to share that, I pray you will show us those. If it's things we do or how we act or maybe attitudes we have or maybe some of those silly angers that I talked about, help us be cleansed of those so that we can have a more intentional life for the people that you've entrusted us with. Help us, Lord, to see that we are in supposed to be about the business of drawing people to the truth of your son Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross. And everything else is pointing to that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.